How many of you have ever walked down a dark path uh, at night by yourself? And then you hear about 30 feet behind you a little rustling in the, in the underbrush. How many, of you, how many of you know the feeling that I'm invoking on the inside of you? You know, Tina and I, Pastor Tina and I were in Uganda, in Zambia, actually. We did one of those, go back to where I, was, where I used to live when I was younger. Um, uh, we were, went with a friend of ours, and we traveled. One of the assignments that we had, uh, the friend of ours, their family, had raised a whole bunch of money to put a well in for a village community that was way out in the remote, remote places. So we were traveling with them, and so we decided that we would go along with them on this trip to this Shaibala village, which was, it just, it was, they, as the, the, the locals would tell us, it's just right over there. Uh, so we were okay with that, and so the deal was, is that we took the friends of ours that we were staying with, we took their vehicle, like a truck, and then we went up the Great North Road for a while, which was a beautiful, nice highway, if you've ever been there. You know, not by our standards beautiful, but by their standards, quite a great highway. And then we turned off the Great North Road, and we went a ways down, another asphalt road. And then a little ways along there, maybe 20 or 30 miles along there, is a guy sitting on the side of the road, and he had been waiting there for us because he was our driver. He was going to take over uh, driving the vehicle and taking us over into the Shaibala village, and so, which was wonderful to meet him. You know, he's a great guy, apparently. Uh, and so then we, he, he gets at the driver's seat, and he goes off the road. It's okay still. It's a, it's a stone road. You know, it's obviously a road, and so we're going along there a while, and then our little stone road turns into, you know, those two, you know, two tire tack roads, you know, with vegetation in the middle. That's all you get is the two tracks. And it was still, you know, it was, uh, it was okay. Then our two tracks turn into one track, one path. And so we're straddling this one path, sort of weaving in and out of all the trees and stuff like that as we're going down this village. And we're all watching the sunset at this time. And, and then the path disappears. And now the only reason we know where we're going is because it's the way that the truck fits through the trees. And so we keep going. I'm, it was probably for a month and a half, but it, it was actually probably only 30 or 40 minutes. But how many of you are vibing with me as to what the feeling is at that moment? You know, we have a very primal response as human beings to things that we don't see. Things that are invisible to us. We don't respond well in general when it comes to that very concept. And so it's kind of what I'd like to just, just discuss with us today is, uh, you know, when we can't see something or we can't measure it or define it or control it, it sets off a whole bunch of very difficult realities on the inside of us. And when we are dealing with those realities, we can often have some very confusing responses. So there could be a chipmunk. Evidently, chipmunks have breeded beyond anything they've done in recent years. And so there's chipmunks everywhere right now. I don't know if you've noticed that, if you live in more rural areas. And so the little rustling on the path in the back could have been as much as a little chipmunk, cute little things, nothing to be afraid of or even concerned about, 
but you know from the description that I gave you, the little, you know, imagination story I gave you, that there can be very significant responses to the fact that there is something behind you and you don't know what that something is. And so as we look back and we consider the concept of God, then we, we, we are forced to be going into seasons in, in the human history when uh, God was undefinable. When human beings knew, I, you know, we were, Pastor Tina and I were watching a, a program, I forget what it's called, something about great empires of the past, or Tina picked it, of course, but... Um, <laughs> And they were showing us the different natures of the empires that have gone before us. And I, was, I, I kind of remarked to her about how the God factor was central to all of those great uh, empires. In fact, archaeologists have still yet to find any civilization of any size that did not have a God concept at the center of that culture or of that society or of that normal way of life. Uh, but the problem is, is that all of these cultures had to deal with the fact that God was invisible, that he was unknowable, that because he was unknowable, we developed uh, all of these primal fears uh, trying to reconcile the dynamic that God was invisible. He was not only invisible, but the very concept that he was God made him infinitely superior to us as human beings. And so if you have an army coming against you in the natural life, it was very, you know, there were no rules, there were no police, there were no, you know, none of that stuff in the olden world. Uh, and so when there was a, 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 another tribe that was wandering the, 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 the fields, it was very important for them to know, you know, are you friendly or are you here on a more difficult motive? You see, with God, there is this ever-present reality. Everybody knew that God was real. Everybody knew that he was vastly superior as a being. <clears throat> but nobody knew what he was like. And so take yourself back to the path that you're walking on in the dark and uh, you know, the, all of a sudden, tick, 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 your phone goes off and lets you know that a lion has escaped from the local zoo. That would magnify your concern about the little Russell Russell behind you infinitely. These are real feelings. These are the real dynamics that these human beings, our ancestors, had to deal with when they were defining what God was like and who he, how we would relate to him and, and uh, uh, you know, how was that going to affect our psychological position? You know, we may think, and even so, it's may think, uh, Ian's talking about ancient history again. Get him off Netflix, please. But we have to recognize that the history of our humanity is all filtering down into our lives. And a lot of the way that we interact with God, even today, we think, well, we've evolved way beyond those primitive ways of, you know, I'm going to suggest to you that perhaps we have done somewhat, but there could still be in our lives significant apprehensions 
that we deal with when it comes to the nature of God, not maybe even because you particularly believe those things or not, but because ancestrally we have seen belief systems that were carried not only by individuals, but by entire societies. And those belief systems, those ways of interacting with God have now slowly but surely been passed down generation by generation by generation. I think we have perhaps sold ourselves a bit short by thinking that, you know, we could read a few scriptures that things have changed and all of a sudden zippity-doo, that stuff is all going to be gone. I think we more so have to be conscious about the fact that there are some significant skeletons that could be lurking in our closets when it comes to what is holding us in a place of apprehension. It's holding us at a, at a safe distance from this almighty, all-powerful God who we perhaps haven't historically known very much about. Throughout history then, this psychological reality of an invisible God has produced some very consistent responses that each of us may find have begun to lurk or have continued to lurk in our attitudes, our relationship towards God. You know, I'm reminded of a scripture in Exodus 19, you may have wandered through there, where, you know, Moses was now interacting or beginning the season now of interacting with God on uh, the Mount Sinai. Uh, and if you've gone through that scripture, it's, it's quite significantly uh, uh, foreboding, you know, where they would have this mountain that would be, you know, fire and smoke and all of these things pouring off the top of this mountain. And God was interested in beginning the process of having a relationship with the Israelite people, with Moses as their head, yes, but he wanted to have a relationship with them. And, uh, and so he said, you know, you got to be careful with the mountain, but when I call you up, you're good to come up. Other than that, don't come up. But when I call you up, when we, we, and I invite you in, then you can come up. And so, it, you know, put your mind and heart in the minds now of the, uh, of the Israelite nation who are being invited onto this fire-brimming, smoke-breathing mountain to visit with this invisible being they refer to as God. Yeah, okay, let's just go, right? Let's just go ahead and wander up the side of the mountain. Well, if you know the story at all, you recognize that, you know, they decided that Moses should go. They decided that they would wait down here, a safe distance from the base of the mountain, and that Moses was to be that person that went. Now, these are God's people. These are the people that God is now displaying at least a, a dimension of his, his as attributes to them, rescuing them from Egypt and, you know, doing the fatherly things that would, that would encompass looking after them and taking care of them and feeding them and watering them and doing all of these great things for them. And yet, even in the midst of seeing these perhaps confusing attributes of God, when they have the opportunity to meet this, what is apparently a benevolent God, a good God, a, a God that wants to know them and look after them. Even Moses coming to them and saying, you know, God, you are God's children, that you are his family. You are the chosen nation. Even in, in that situation, the 
primal fears that had been cooking in the soup of their own personal DNA over thousands of years held them a safe distance from the base of that mountain. Each of us then can look at the metaphoric nature in our own lives now to say, you know, what is it about God? Or what is it about my belief about God? Or what have I been taught or shown? Or what did the, my DNA transfer into my life that is holding me perhaps at a safer distance from God and from his plan and from his will for my life that's just far enough away that gives me some level of control, some level of, of ability to govern depending on what comes out of the rustling bushes behind me. Just give me a little bit of room to get a, you know, a head start anyways. And so I try to keep myself at a safe distance. I try to keep myself a little bit farther away than I normally would. People in those days and perhaps in, even in our day and in our lives, you know, I just can't seem to trust him completely. I, I want to keep myself at a safe distance. I'm, I kind of wonder every now and again, I wouldn't say it out loud, but I, I just wonder every now and again about his motives or why he's asking me to do the things that he's asking me to do. And I'm, because of that, I'm kind of cautious about my relationship with God. I'm, I'm a little tentative. You see, the God is invisible thing has ignited a primal fear that all of us have about things that we don't understand. That's not new. You didn't invent that. That's been around since the very beginning of time. Invisible, you see, makes everything scary. It makes it confusing. It, it makes it unsafe. You know, an all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal God, well, that makes him a tyrant. Because anybody, I mean, if, if I had to be looking at myself, uh, if I was all-knowing and all-powerful and I was eternal and I couldn't die or get hurt or, you know, wouldn't I become a tyrant? And so people, it was, it was not even a question, in fact, in the, in the ancient days. I don't know that it's really that much of a question today as I, I you know, hear after the great philosophers, even in our day, I can hear at the root of their insistence of God's existence or lack thereof, that really what they don't like about God is not that he is God, it's, it's that he is a tyrant and that he's forcing people to do stuff that they don't want to do. Even in our modern enlightened day, that's still the problem, that God is a tyrant, or at least they think he is a tyrant. And this makes God dangerous. It, it makes his inescapable reality a very different psychological reality. And so I was watching these, uh, these programs, Pastor Natina and I, she endured it with me. Thank you, honey, by the way. You see some fairly consistent, everything's very different about the way people do things. You know, some gods were animals and some were planets and some were people and some were, you know, you kind of went anywhere from the pagan to the 
mythological over to the occultic, all of that kind of thing. You know, that's the difficulty with there being an invisible God. You can kind of make up any story you like. And as long as you have enough influence and enough time, after a while, everybody's going to believe that your version of God is, is real. And this is what happened to us in our, in our ancient days. And, but, and so there's vastly different, vastly, vastly different, even as they wandered us through the eight or ten different empires of the past. And so you see that the, 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 the image, the photograph of God is radically different with each empire. But there were some fairly stark consistencies on how people dealt, not necessarily with what God looked like, you know, one eye or two eye, is he an ox or is he a moon or whatever? Those were very different. But the consistent, what was consistent was their psychological response to this, to the nature of God and to the existence of God, the reality of this all-powerful but yet invisible being. And those strategies looked a little bit like this. One of them, I think you'll, you'll be familiar with them all. I would, we're going to wonderfully have the opportunity to say, yeah, those are in ancient days, but your mind is going to wander, if it's like mine, to the fact that we have all this still today. We have all of these same strategies going on today that are uh, evidence of the fact that we still treat God as though he is an invisible, unknowable, uh, all-powerful kind of a being evidenced by some of the strategies, which are universal and they, they are timeless, as they build, as we build, as we develop responses, psychological responses to the nature of what we think God is about. Number one is probably the, mo the most prevalent was the people try to appease God. They try to be compliant with his wishes, whatever those wishes might be. And they kind of made that up too as to what, what would be necessary to make the gods happy, god or god whatever, depending on which empire you were in. But it was very important for people in those cultures to make sure that they appeased God, that make sure that God was smiling at them. And so you can see them being very manipulative in their relationship. You know, these sa human sacrifices were there. You know, there was all these crazy rituals and animals. And there was, you know, the way they would live their lives. They'd have, you know, idols here and prayers there and all of this kind of stuff that was going on. Uh, but it was really going on because they were desiring to appease God. You know, you just have to keep the guy happy. You know, just trying to manipulate him a little bit so that the anger that they, would, they had suspected was, was kindled in God's heart towards them that would be somehow placated, would be somehow at least calmed down a little bit because of all of these duties, all of these things that we did. Can I say, I look at some of these, I've been, I've been to a couple of the places where you see these monuments that were built. You know, I've, uh, you know anyways, for us to try and build something like that, even with all of our current construction technologies, would take lifetimes. Back in the day, we've seen things that would, they took 600 years to build this monument to the sun god or something like that. Lives, so much of the energies of life were being given to appeasing God, to making sure that at least he was smiling at us. Think about that human energy in the past. 
that has been devoted to the appeasement, not, not, not even considering the guy who ended up drawing the short straw in the human sacrifice days, the amount of human energy that was given to this appeasement, the necessity to appease God was crazy. You know, another strategy is to, to redefine God, give him a little bit of, of uh, you know, maybe a little bit more palatable nature. And so they could maybe have a way that they gave a story about God. I'm thinking about, you know, the mythological days when, you know, you kind of made God, he's kind of busy doing God stuff over there. You know, I don't have to worry too much about him over here. You know, it's a little, you know, mere human that exists out in the, you know, the outer regions of society. So it's like God's so busy over there having his war with the other gods who are over there. And, you know, I don't have to worry so much about him. I can get him off my mind a little bit. Because I've created this story, this redefining nature of God. Maybe I would, you know, I can control God or maybe put him inside of a little legal box. It's kind of what religion tried to do, you know. We would do these things and then God would do those things and then everything would be kind of, I had kind of God legally cornered because I was doing certain things. And what's maybe more common in our world, I think you'll be familiar with this process, this psychological process of ignoring or denying that God even exists. Maybe God's busy. Maybe he's forgotten about us. Maybe he just doesn't care anymore. And so it's really, I can, you know, just get him out of my mind. I can become a, you know, he don't care about me. I don't care about him kind of a person. All the way to the place where it's just like, you know, good possibility he didn't even exist. And so what is that doing? That's getting me away from the psychological reality that would otherwise be a little bit difficult for me. It would be a little constraining. It would be a little scary. It would make me feel a little bit unsafe. And we can easily find these, all of these still exist in our world today in the man-God relationship. They're all still there. And these things I'm talking about, these sort of strategies, they're not, they're not cognitive. They're not, you don't think about them. Here's what, I'm, here's what I'm gonna do to placate my fear of God. No, it's not like that. It's just, you know, you hear the rustling in the bush behind you and you, you don't you know, get out your iPad and Google, what should I do at this point? When I, you just run, <laughs> right? It's just, bam, you're gone. And so this is a lot of times what has happened and that now has been passed down. I, I can't overstate enough today that these realities, even though we would say, well, I don't really ascribe to those things anymore. In fact, a lot of those dynamics have filtered their way through down into our lives. I'll skip over that because I'm running out of time. But you see, we have a great advantage because, you know, God decided, this invisible God who nobody could know, this divine being who was imperceptible to us, decided to come to dinner. Uh, he came over. He appeared. He visited with us. You know, in John chapter one, it's such a, I've just been fixated on this unusual chapter in the beginning of the gospels where Paul, or excuse me, John sort of takes this 
what would normally be a chronological account of the stories of Jesus, and he starts off his gospel with this kind of philosophical discussion about the nature of God. And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word was God. And then that Word came here into this natural dimension, and it assembled to itself, it took upon itself flesh. And we would say, because we're so much more enlightened, we would say that it gathered its, itself, gathered to itself the molecules needed for it to appear. And then God himself became visible to humanity. He, the indefinable had become definable. You know, have you, ever, have you ever talked to somebody on the phone and then met them in real life? How many of you have ever done that? You kind of talk to them on the phone and you think, I, I, I get a picture in my mind about what this person is going to look like. And then when you finally do meet that person, you're kind of, you're, your brain's going tilt, tilt, tilt. I remember this. How many of you, uh, you're going to have to, this is going to betray my age a wee bit here, but how many know who Kate, Casey Kasem is? Does any of you old folks still know who that is? Casey Kasem was a, a, a ra uh, radio. Radio is a device by which you could only hear sound coming through it. How oh, weird, I know. Ancient of days here. Casey Kasem was originally a, uh, a radio disc jockey a, who would play music. And then he evolved out of that. This is when I was, a, I don't know, once I'm a teenager or whatever, in the 70s, 80s, whatever. Yes, Pastor Ian used to be a teenager. And then he went on television. And I, I had this image, you know, he had one of those, you know, serious, good, male, macho, you know, radio voices. Casey, Kasem. I'm thinking the guy's a mountain. You know, this guy is, you know, he's like Goliath, this guy. And then he went on television, and I can still remember to this day, I'm thinking, that is not Casey Kasem. It cannot be. He was, you know, I'm, no offense to the guy. It just was different than what I had imagined in my mind. He was, you know, small, slight build and all of those type of things. And I was, I can remember being shocked by how we build pictures in our minds about the things that we kind of, we kind of fill in the blanks in our mind. But that's not really the hard part. The hard part was I had to watch the show a whole bunch of times before I accepted the fact that that was Casey Kasem because my mind just would not let me accept that this person who I had imagined wasn't even close to what he actually was. And so we see this exact situation in the scriptures. You know, even if you go along there in my little, my John chapter one, I'm, you know, as I'm saying, I'm just kind of glued there right now. And it says that Jesus came to his own in verse 11. And it, and it says, but his own did not receive him. So here's the deal. So I've, I've written you a whole bunch of letters about me for thousands of years now, and they are now central to your existence. It's part of your national identity is that you read my book. And then the author of the book shows up 
And no, but not like half the people. Nobody recognizes him. And even when he says to the people who studied his books the most, he says to them, guys, I'm the guy. They're going, no, you're not. It's like with me, with Casey Kasem. He would come on the TV and say, hi there, I'm Casey Kasem. And I'm thinking, no, you're not. Their brains would not accept the fact that their imaginary God, the person who would be this invisible, all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal, can-do-anything-he-wants God, is this person standing in front of me. The very DNA, the Word of God produced Jesus' DNA, and DNA produced Jesus in the flesh. This was God. And how many of us would find that it would be difficult, just like the Israelite people, the, the people who Jesus met every day? They had this idea in their head, but every single one of them got it wrong. Every one of them got it wrong. I, you know, I got a question for you. you know, does Jesus need to be who you expect him to be? Does he need to line up with your imagination of what he would be like? You know, in Isaiah, uh, we get he, the, the prophet Isaiah 53, he gives a little bit of it. We don't really know what Jesus looked like. Uh, there was no account. None of the people who knew Jesus thought to themselves, I should say what he looks like. There's no reference to his eye color. There's no reference to the texture of his hair. There's no reference to how tall he is or short he is. There's no reference at all to Jesus' physical appearance. The prophet Isaiah, matter of fact, gives us a bit of a clue as to perhaps why that would be. And he tells us that Jesus had nothing special at all in his physical appearance. He was completely average in every possible way. It says also that he was, was never, he was never arrayed in any trappings of royalty or kingship or godship or anything like that. You know, you'd think that there would be at least something definable about him. You know, we see pictures in the olden days that have the halo around your head. You know, I, when I was young, I used to think, okay, well, that's how you would know who Jesus was in the crowd. But there was nothing definable like that about him. He was just, how many of you have ever thought when you think about God that he is physically unremarkable? Just think about that. Well, you think, no, if he's God, he, he can make himself any way he wants, right? He'd look like Fabian or something, at least Arnold. You know, he would have, he's got all the choices in the whole wide world Surely he'd look like Tom, right? It would, be, it would be real, but he didn't. And that was shocking to them all to themselves. Like, it's like, oh, wait a minute here. You can't be God. There's absolutely nothing remarkable about the way you appear. There's nothing, you didn't dress a certain way. You didn't wear your hair pink or anything like that. There was, no, there was nothing remarkable at all. You know, in Matthew, in, in Matthew chapter 10, 
It, it talks about, we, have, we often have the wrong picture of God. It's kind of like people think about me. They think I talk all the time. Because anytime you see me, I'm talking. But I don't talk else at all. Jesus was like this. That Jesus would, uh, <laughs> Tina is presently saying he talks a lot more than he used to talk. So it's, maybe that's, anyways. Can I say that Jesus, when well, he, we would, you know, we got him, Jesus on the, you know, the mount as he's releasing the Beatitudes, you know, thousands of people as he's, he's his great orator, but that wasn't, he did that, but that wasn't his, his way. Matthew tells us that Jesus, get this, he whispered in the dark. And so it's like, wait, like, dude. There's no possible way that you can be God. You would not act like this if you were God. I'm struggling so much in my ability to, to appreciate that you, you're saying that you're God, but my brain is tilting right now because you are definitely not doing the stuff that I thought you would do or, or I thought God would do if I ever did get a chance to meet him. Surely he would have firebolts coming out of his fingertips. At least there would be a dull fog that followed him around. You know, the, none of that was going on. Surely Jesus would have a little bit of charisma that he would be a, a, a phenomenal orator. He would tell stories and he didn't do that. Man, he got up on stage. He says, you know, this little day, and he left. You surely he would have some credential. Because these are the things that we, that if you want to be influential, you don't want to be powerful. You need to have a little charisma. You need to at least be able to hold people's attention for a while. Maybe he would have some credential. At least be born in Jerusalem, for goodness sakes. Can you at least have a legitimate father? Something about you that we could celebrate. Could you go to a university that we recognize? Could you have some kind of a talent that would separate you in a godlike way? Nothing. Maybe he was a celebrity, you know, he just kind of wandered into town. He was, you know, a rock star or something like that. I became a celebrity, but I've talked about this before. It was, Jesus would do crazy awesome stuff and then tell people, don't say nothing. Jesus had no interest in being a celebrity. Matter of fact, most people don't know this, but Jesus, up until the Lazarus thing, you know, the, the raising the dead thing, Jesus was fairly obscure. Nobody really knew about him. He had hundreds of people that would come and follow him. Now, once the Lazarus thing happened and Jesus could not control the, the buzz anymore, and now we start hearing about the thousands and the tens of thousands and the twenties of thousands of people that are now assembled to see this guy who could do these magic tricks. But up until that point, Jesus was quite obscure. He was in the Galilee. The Galilee was, you know, no offense, like Waynefleet. It's out back. You see, when people met him, you're, they're trying to they're trying to believe him. They're, they're, they're trying to accept that this is this is God. 
You know, but the, the people who would try, the masses would come and they would see a magician. The religious people, they just saw an enemy. They saw somebody who was saying stuff that didn't include them. The zealots, they saw an ally, somebody who perhaps could help them in their political struggles. Even his own posse coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, they saw a religious leader. They saw, let's build a tabernacle and we'll, we'll form a religion and the great, the great Transfiguration religion. And, you know, Pilate, I think, came the closest. It's kind of startling because he's got a real super bad rap. But I think Pilate came the closest to seeing him. Remember in the, in the movie, Rexus II, are you a king? See, Pilate didn't need anything from Jesus so he could see him better. Everybody else needed something and they were fixated on what they needed. You see, God had, had visited, but nobody figured it out. The exact duplicate. God had cloned himself. But he was nothing like the imaginations that mortals had conjured up about him. And reconciling that proved to be very difficult for people. For trillions of years now, God had remained invisible, unknowable, imperceptible. And then one moment, he decided to allow people to see him, to see him for who he really was. I guess the question then becomes, why did he do that? You see, with us as human beings now, we have this terrible quality of imagining the worst in the things that are invisible to us. Think about this pandemic that we're going through right now. It's invisible and it creates terrible fears. God wanted, he came here to show us himself because he wanted us to get rid of all those old ways of thinking. You used to think I was a tyrant. I am anything but a tyrant. You used to think that I was angry, but I'm never angry. Rare, you know, angry and only in righteous ways. You see, what God wanted to do is he wanted to show us himself so that we would know him. But more than that, he wanted us to know who we are. Because if we are his children and we are made in the image and likeness of God, then it's really important for us to know who our father is. And he wants us to be able to know ourselves and what we are capable of, and what is our potential. Because we were created, we were also created as clones of God. 
So as we close today, here's why I've explained to taking the time to talk about all this. That I sense even in our modern time that we have this unexplainable safe distance from God and from his plan for our lives. Which, frankly, as Christians, doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense that we would be afraid of a God who would die for us. And then by extension, Romans tells us that if he would die for us, then he would do, what would he not do for us? We have no reason to be afraid of him. We have no reason to run from him. We have no reason to keep a safe distance. We have no reason to wonder whether we can trust him. We have no reason to wonder what his motives could possibly be in the, in the instructions that he gives us to our own lives. Except perhaps that we've got some business to do with the imaginations that we have built or that people before us have built about this invisible nature of God, this unknowable, this fearful and often terrifying nature of God. I remember I was reminded, I was putting this teaching together back when we were in the other building, what is now the Dream Center in, uh, in Crystal Beach, soon to be, a couple weeks. Praise God for that. And I was teaching this message about, I, I, just, I have the image in my mind still to this day of, you know, when we're wandering towards the gates of heaven, excited to meet God, you know. Gosh, this is going to be phenomenal. <laughs> I mean, thunderbolts coming out of his hands, you know, beams of light coming out of his eyes, you know, the glow and the fog, and just like awesome. You think it's cool here, man. Wait till you see the heaven's thrones. And we're all so excited, you know. And along the way, you see this little gardener guy on the side of the road picking, you know, the leaves off the dandelions to make a quick salad. And we're so busy, you know, he's kind of, we kind of shuffle him off to the side. Don't really notice him, you don't have any teeth. He's got long scraggly hair and he's just busy in his busy in his job picking the leaves off the dandelions. I think y'all know where I'm going. We get all the way to the throne. And they say, no, he's, you already met him. He was the not like we think. We're scared of something that we have no reason to be afraid of. You hear the rustle in the back, run towards it, not away from it. God has already shown us he is the most perfect of people. He is the most loving. You know, as we, have, we step into August, as you, you might have known, we, last week I announced we're gonna, we're gonna do another 30-30, take 30 minutes a day in tongues for 30 days. 
We're going to take 15 minutes to journal our season, just what the Lord is saying, and then we're going to take 15 minutes and ask God what his assignment is for our day. So many people are afraid to ask God what he would like them to do today. As if what he's going to do is going to harm us or hurt us or be difficult or whatever. Can I tell you, jump right into this. I've already heard people have started and are having amazing testimonies of things that are going on in their lives. Can I ask you, over the 30 days of August, hey Jen, over the 30 days of August, can we individually, personally, do business with all of this ancestral garbage that we might have in our lives that's making us afraid of this invisible God. This tender, loving, caring, compassionate, rooting for you, believes in you, understands you, knows you person who we still keep a safe distance from. You put your hand over your heart with me and say, Holy Spirit, I so much want to know God. I know Jesus came here to show me what the Father was like. So Holy Spirit, cleanse my heart of all the fears all the human responses that may have been built up when I didn't see God, when I didn't know him, when he was just a fearful tyrant. Holy Spirit, I reject all those imaginations. Fill my mind with the nature of God. The loving, the kind, the gentle, the God who believes in me, and the God who knows how to get me to my destiny. In Jesus' name.